in the local convent where I live in DC, Our Lady Queen of Preachers, there is a, a custom, and I believe the custom might be limited to our local convent, so don't spread word about this, but uh, the night before someone gives a dissertation defense, we watch an action movie. Um, <laughs> and uh, when this was proposed uh, to me, I wasn't the first to experience this, but um, I, I didn't say, but why? Um, I, I can offer those, some reasons why this is actually very fitting. Um, first, it's a distraction from um, ill-advised last-minute changes. Uh, it also revives one's ability to look at something other than a text and to interact with people. Um, and lastly, it is strangely restful to see externalized and public the action that up to this point has been internal and private and unspeakable. This is to say that the pursuit of wisdom, at least when it comes to preparing for a dissertation defense, is very much like a Bourne movie, a Jason Bourne movie, or Gladiator, or any one of these. There are some notable differences, though, I've already suggested. Um, in an action film, the protagonist can either fight or flee the enemy. The protagonist has to hunt for the enemy, but once found, the enemy can ordinarily be identified by a snazzy foreign accent or by a change in the epic soundtrack. Also, everything is resolved in about two hours, unless it's a trilogy. <laughs> in the pursuit of wisdom, nothing is resolved in two hours. There's no epic music, and the enemies are actually more formidable because not only are they legion, but because they are internal, they are physically inescapable and very often indistinguishable from oneself. For these reasons, the film depicting the real action of the pursuit of wisdom would not be a box office hit. So consider the screenplay of the wisdom drama featuring Timothy, whose name means God-fearer, and the enemies of the pursuit of wisdom. Timothy is at his desk. He's been staring at the same paragraph for an indeterminate period of time in search for the key distinction that will bring clarity at last. He puts his hands on his head. What will happen if he can't find the distinction? What if he sees the distinction but can't express it adequately? What if he expresses it adequately according to his own judgment but not according to the judgment of his professors? What if he never finds the distinction and can't complete the paper in time? How many more times can he miss a deadline or hit it shabbily before he's written off entirely as a failure? The camera angle widens as Tim Timothy shoves back his chair and moves toward the kitchenette. As he reaches for the Italian espresso machine, he notices a sink in the plate, still bearing the remnants of his room roommate's buffalo wings dinner two nights ago. Timothy, grateful for a fight that he's likely to win, plots out his opening statement against his roommate. <laughs> so this, this is part of the wisdom drama. <laughs> there are two reasons why I wanted to begin this talk, which is entitled The Work of Fear in the Seeker of Wisdom with this screenplay. First, I wanted to give a context in which we can consider the work of fear. 
Only if you have identified a goal, such as the pursuit of wisdom or the completion of a paper, will you be able to recognize that fear isn't something that is a static thing. Rather, it is a dynamic work. It is an activity that is either for or against you. Only if you've decided to set sail in a particular direction, so to speak, will you experience the winds as being at your back or in your face. The second reason I wanted to start off with this screenplay was I wanted to narrow the context, not to the pursuit of any goal whatsoever, but specifically to the goal of growing in wisdom. I chose this both for your sake and for my sake. For your sake, because I'm listening, I'm assuming that all of you who are listening to this talk have at least the intention of being open to wisdom. And thus, I'm assuming that everyone has experienced some of the work of fear that pushes back against that pursuit. I'm choosing this context for my sake because fear is related to the pursuit of academic of, of wisdom are my specialty. You can laugh there. <laughs> right. All right. Um, my intention in this talk is ultimately practical, though. I'd like to present St. Thomas's account of fear in a manner that can assist the removal of those fears that work against wisdom and that assist our openness to the fear that is the beginning of wisdom. I propose to do this in four parts. First, I'll give an account of uh, St. Thomas's description of fear in general. Second, I'll present some of the distinctions that he draws among kinds of fear. Third, I'll identify the reason why some of these fears work against wisdom. And then fourth and lastly, I'll give some suggestions that are rooted in St. Thomas but aren't strictly from him for what we can do to free ourselves from those fears that work against wisdom and to open ourselves to the gift of fear of the Lord. So, part one. What is fear in general? St. Thomas defines fear as a movement of the sensitive appetite in response to the apprehension of a future evil that is difficult to avoid. Let's unpack that. I'm gonna start with the terms that are broadest and then we'll narrow down to fear itself. So first, the term appetite. St. Thomas articulates the way that we interact with the world in terms of apprehension, so taking the world in or being receptive to the world, and then appetite, which would be to respond to what we have apprehended. Our ability to apprehend the world exists in us in a twofold manner. So we have apprehension that is by means of our senses, with five external and then four internal. And by means of this apprehension, we can receive, we can uh, interact with the world on, in terms of its sensible order. We can also apprehend the world in terms of intelligible order, so by means of our intellect. Two things to note about apprehension that, that'll be important for understanding appetite is first that we don't experience the world first on a sensory level and then we have intellectual recognition. So it's not as though there are two layers. And so these are two aspects that are fully integrated. 
For example, if there were a buffalo wing here <laughs> on, on the, the podium, I wouldn't first um, smell it and see it and maybe listen for it to see if it makes a buffalo noise <laughs> and then conclude, ah, this is a buffalo wing, <laughs> right? So our intellects work, uh, you know, you could say in simultaneous conjunction with, uh, with the senses. Uh, second thing to note is that um, if there were a buffalo wing on the podium here, um, in one respect, we would all be apprehending the same buffalo wing. St. Thomas calls this the material object. In another respect, though, we won't be apprehending the same buffalo wing. Why? Because when I was 12 years old, this is a true story, I got food poisoning from buffalo wings. So when I apprehend a buffalo wing, there are lenses, so to speak, through which I apprehend that. So my a buffalo wing will appear differently to me because I am viewing it through a different set of experiences, memories, all of which are associated with, with you know, appetitive responses in the past. Um, and I, I hope that not all of you, when you were 12 years old, uh, had such a response to buffalo wings because it is, it is tragic, I tell you. <laughs> um, St. Thomas calls those lenses through which we apprehend the material object, um, he'll call that the formal object. And when you bring them together, St. Thomas calls this the intention. So the object of appetite will be an intention. So that's the union of the material and the formal object. Referring to the object as, as an intention is important because first, it can explain why some of us might have opposite appetitive responses to the same material object. Again, I would back away cautiously, keeping the buffalo wing in view at all times, and you <laughs> might pounce upon it or say, I would gladly subsist all through Lent on buffalo wings. Right? Um, it's also practically important because the formal aspects of the intention, of the formal object um, for us is malleable. That is to say, it's subject to refinement, refinement with experience and reflection. So at least theoretically, we can adjust the lenses through which we view things. Okay, thus far, apprehension, now turning to appetite. Our appetites, like apprehension, also are twofold. So we have a sense appetite that inclines us toward sensible goods, like really good Italian espresso, and away from sensible evils, like burning yourself on the espresso machine. We also have an intellectual appetite that inclines us toward intelligible goods, like the affection of a friend um, or the unity of um, Bach or Beethoven, and away from intelligible evils, like backbiting or cheap elevator music. The appetite with which we are initially concerned in this talk is going to be the sense appetite. Thomas calls the activation or the movement of the sense appetite a passion. We experience a passion only when we suffer the apprehension of an evil or good object, namely the intention. Sometimes we suffer it um, you know, because it's also physically present, but we can suffer an object that's presented to us through our, our memory and imagination as well. St. Thomas distinguishes between two kinds of passions, and the distinction is drawn on the basis of the kind of object that we apprehend. 
So the biggest distinction among all the passions is between what he'll call the concupiscible and the irascible passions. So concupiscible passions arise um, in response to goods and evils that are either easy to get or easy to avoid. And there are six of these. And the six of them are distinguished not only according to whether you're dealing with something that is uh, a good or an evil, but also according to whether these goods or evils are present or absent. Of course, they're always present to you somehow in your apprehension, but deals with sort of are you in possession of it yet or not. So just to list those off, um, uh, there are three related to a good. So in general, um, you have love, um, amor, you know, toward brownies. Um, and if I were to say I have some brownies uh, down here beneath the podium, you would not say, oh, I just love, you might say, I love brownies, but then you would say, I want the brownies, I desire them. And this is uh, concupiscentia. Um, and then if I say, here are the brownies, and you eat it, then you would say, ah, oh, um, delectatio, pleasure. With respect to evils, simple to, uh, easy to avoid, say, how do you feel about um, uh, a blast of cold when you open the door um, and you're already cold, you know? Uh, oh, I hate that, right? And say, okay, well, I'm gonna open up the door. And in even, even before the door is open, you might have this response of backing up, an aversion. Um, so hate uh, would be odium, and then aversion would be fuga, or abominatio. And then lastly, in the presence, suppose I open up the door and you're, you're cold, then um, you probably still would be experiencing aversion, but you would also be experiencing sorrow, tristitia, or pain, dolor. All right, thus far, um, the concupiscible passions. So the irascible passions show up not in response to things like brownies and a blast of cold air, but in response to goods that are difficult to achieve and evils that are difficult to avoid. There are five irascible passions, and they are arranged not just according to presence or absence, but rather according to whether we are inclined to move toward that good or evil that's difficult, or whether we're inclined to move away from that evil or good that is difficult. So with respect to goods um, that we don't yet possess, so a good that is difficult, um, a future difficult good, the inclination to move toward it is hope. The inclination to move away from it is despair. With respect to future evils that are difficult, the inclination to move toward it would be daring, audacia, and away from it is fear, timor. And then the fifth one that doesn't quite match up neatly in this the two-column uh, scheme is anger, which is the inclination to eliminate a present evil. So I'd like to mention two things about fear. Again, we've finally gotten to it, so fear is one of those irascible passions. First, unlike all other passions, fear is caused by the apprehension of a future evil that's difficult to avoid. So just to make three quick distinctions, Fear differs from aversion because aversion is from an evil that's easy to avoid. How do you, you, know, how do you avoid the cold blast of the door? You walk away. Um, but how do you avoid the evil of 
not finding the distinction on the paper, you can't just walk away. Fear differs from despair in that despair is of a future good, whereas fear is of a future evil. And then lastly, fear differs from sadness in that sadness regards a present evil, while fear is of a future evil. So St. Thomas says, um, <laughs> the man who is, I think it's, if he's on the guillotine, uh, or if he's on the plank, right? he's, he's a man who's condemned to execution. St. Thomas says, that man doesn't fear. Uh, and I paused over that. I said, I probably would be fearing, you know, like if I'm on the plank and I'm about to be pushed or jump or something, I probably would still be fearing. And Thomas says, the reason why the man doesn't fear is because at that point he has no hope. I thought, ah, um, why? Uh, and I said, okay, maybe that means I'm just naturally a hopeful person, which means that I also am prone to greater fear. So interestingly, you can only fear if you have hope. So if you're looking to be encouraged, if you are a fearful person, that means that you do hold out some hope. Now, what you place your hope in matters, but at least inherently speaking, there's nothing sinful about being hopeful. Um, second comment about fear is that like all the other passions, fear is caused ultimately by love. So to walk through that, fear is a response to our apprehension of a future evil. But nothing appears evil to us unless it threatens something that we love. So the easiest way to get rid of fear is to eliminate all of your loves. I'm not recommending that. Since there are different things that we can love, however, the material object. And for any one of these material objects, there are different ways that we can apprehend that as lovable or as good. That's the formal object. It means that there are many ways that we can fear. This is exciting. <laughs> um, not only because it means that fears really are legion, um, but it's exciting because we can name our fears. We can distinguish them and know their character if we can name the love in relation to which they exist. So let me just underscore that. The connection between fear and love is important practically for the work of healing. Because in order to heal a fear, we have to identify the love from which that fear springs. All right, so part two, distinctions among kinds of fear. The first distinction Thomas draws is between what we'll call natural and intellectual fear. The difference between these mirrors the difference between natural, that is to say sensible love, and intellectual love. So here, we're making a distinction among fears on the basis of the kind of love um, that is uh, uh, in relation to you know, um, the perceived evil. So natural fears are in us in virtue of our having sense perception. We share these in common with actual buffalo. <laughs> so the buffalo has a natural fear. Um, I'm not sure exactly what buffalo fear, <laughs> um, but probably fire. <laughs> um, not, a, not, not the fire qua espresso machine, but. <laughs> um, so the work of these natural fears is to protect our bodily integrity. So 
um, non-natural fear or intellectual fear is in us in virtue of our having intellectual apprehension. So this fear arises in us um, to something that is beyond the capacity of our senses to perceive. The work of these fears, of intellectual fears, is to protect not only our bodily integrity, but you could say our integrity as immaterial spiritual beings as well. So first distinction, natural and intellectual fear. Second distinction is made among intellectual fears. As I had said before, the variety of objects that we can love as rational beings extends far beyond simply that of the buffalo. As rational beings, we can love not only particular things like espresso, um, but we can also love, I uh, could say, universal things like you know, ideas or the goodness of a friend. And we can color any one of these loves by associating them with some judgment or memory. St. Thomas identifies six species of intellectual fear. So uh, three of these arise in response to an action that is related to attaining some good. So we've identified something good, like um, the espresso, right? <laughs> you know, drinking the espresso. Uh, and there is some fear related to the action of acquiring or coming into possession or union with this thing that we love. So one fear is called laziness. <laughs> this is the inclination to recoil from the toil that is involved. So for example, I fear the, lab the labor of measuring the grinds, <laughs> um, of, you know, of screwing the, the top onto the espresso maker and of waiting, um, and then of later cleaning the espresso maker. Um, <laughs> I realize this is overblown in terms of the arduousness of making espresso, but you get the idea. So laziness is in response to, again, the labor. Um, uh, Shamefacedness is a second species of fear, and again, related to an action. So shamefacedness is the inclination to recoil from the disgrace that will come from an action that we are about to commit. So suppose I am so lazy in regard to making this espresso that I decide, you know what? The fastest way to get caffeine into me is getting me to open up that Folgers container of instant and I look around, and then I dump it in my mouth. <laughs> oh, you feel it, right? So I haven't yet done that, but already there is some fear, right? Why? This is shamefacedness. I haven't done it yet, but already I fear the disgrace that will come from an action um, that I am inclined to, to commit. Um, and then related uh, to this is um, shame. So shame again, is a species of fear related to uh, an action. So this is the inclination to recoil from the disgrace that will come from an action that I have already committed. So suppose that I actually dumped a significant portion of an instant Folgers <laughs> uh, you know, coffee can into my mouth, um, and then I walk away and you know, you look around, you're like, did anyone really see me? You know, <laughs> God saw, right? So then there's shame, right? Um, and that, uh, that disgrace is difficult to avoid right? because I've already committed some action. All right, three more species. 
relate not to an action, but actually to a thing itself. So um, there are three fears that arise in response to perception of an evil in relation to some entity. One is uh, the inclination to recoil from the magnitude, the sheer magnitude of something. This is um, admiratio, so sometimes translated wonder, sometimes translated amazement. Uh, this, is, this is a stretch, I'm gonna stay with the espresso here, but <laughs> I fear to drink an espresso because I perceive its surpassing quality, and I know that I could never possibly savor it sufficiently. So I do wanna pause here and say, just because you experience admiratio doesn't mean that you don't drink the espresso. It just means that you have this, at least an initial response of, oh, not me, right? <laughs> Who am I to behold this? Um, and that's an important distinction from uh, the second species of uh, fear, or actually it's the fourth or fifth, um, which is stupor. So stupor is the inclination to recoil from um, the peculiarity um, of something, the unwantedness of something. Um, so this is something where, in other words, I didn't expect this. So I, I stand back because this, the, the magnitude of it isn't, um, isn't discernible to me. There's an I know not what. Um, so I am inclined to recoil. And then the sixth species of fear is familiar, I believe, to all of us. In fact, it's been mentioned already in uh, both of the talks. Uh, anxiety, agonia, um, which is the fear of the unforeseenness of something. There's a lot that could be said of this, but I think the, the notion of unforeseenness might be a strange way that we would describe this. It's, it's more that we recognize that the thing before us is not under our control, and therefore we, we recoil. So I might fear to drink an espresso because it is thrust upon me immediately um, by my roommate, you know, in the middle of that argument about the buffalo wings. Um, so I haven't, been timed, I haven't had time to consider whether I want this or um, really to, to prepare. In other words, I'm not in control of the situation, so I recoil. The third set of uh, distinctions that Thomas draws among fears relates not simply to um, intellectual uh, fears, but to a very specific object, namely God. It's interesting to me that Thomas treats fear of God not merely by rehearsing again those six species of intellectual fear. In fact, um, I as I was preparing this talk, I thought, gosh, how do these connect? You know, the, the ways in which we fear God and then the intellectual fears. And could he have just run through those six intellectual fears with respect to God? Um, so that's speculative, um, but I'll ask a slightly different question, which is, what makes God so special that he gets his own set of distinctions? That's an unfair question, obviously. Um, but here's my attempt to answer that unfair question. Uh, fear of God is special because how we fear God reveals what we love most. How we fear God reveals what we love most. And I'll refer to this as a primary love. A primary love is significant not only because it is, you know, uh, it, it outstrips all the other loves, but because it is the principle of order for all our other loves and for all of our fears. 
all lesser goods will appear good to us only insofar as they advance our possession or union with our primary love. You're going to learn a lot about my childhood here, but uh, when I was nine years old, <laughs> for at least a few months, I was obsessed with purple. Obsessed. <laughs> and uh, that made Christmas gifts and birthday gifts very easy because it didn't matter. Like it could have been, you know, I don't know, a socket wrench. If it was purple, I loved it. <laughs> um, and so there it is, right? My primary love, um, unfortunately, was purple. <laughs> and that meant that everything else was loved insofar as it was purple. Um, I didn't yet know the, that great word qua, so my love was purple, right? So, and anything qua purple. Um, but also, you can say that would determine whether I feared anything and what I feared. So suppose someone had given me an orange backpack and then you know, the backpack was stolen. I wouldn't have been afraid of that, right? I wouldn't have had any nightmares about the orange backpack being stolen because it wouldn't have touched my primary love, which would have been purple. Um, Thomas doesn't use uh, purple as an example, nor does he actually use the phrase primary love, but I do think that it is at least compatible with Thomas's way of distinguishing um, among three ways in which we can fear God. Um, comment just before we jump into these. Um, Thomas notes that no one fears God himself um, because he is all good. We fear God only insofar as he is related to some evil. And there are two evils that we can fear in relation to God. One is the evil of punishment, which comes from God due to sin. And then the other is the evil of offense, which is directed toward God, again, from sin. So we have three ways that we can fear God, again, in, in relation to these, these two evils. First set of people, those who fear to be punished by God such that they turn away from him have what Thomas calls worldly or human fear. We have worldly or human fear if our primary love is ourself but understood only as a consumer of pleasure. This is to say, those with servile fear have a disordered apprehension, even of themselves. So they are the primary object of their love, but they don't perceive themselves in an ordered way. Anyone whose greatest love is his own pleasure will view everything, and actually everyone, either as a source of pleasure or as a rival to that. Since the man with worldly fear views himself as his greatest good, this is sad because he can't appeal to anything greater than himself to deliver himself from his fears. This is my commentary, but it seems like those with worldly fear make do, they manage by playing their fears off of each other. Um, so you fear to be fat, um, but you also fear the pain of exercise. So you somehow, maybe even externally, you, you manage to maintain some sort of um, you know, composure in terms of your health and whatnot, but the thing that's guiding it isn't a love um, of health in an ordered manner, but it's actually just this, this competition um, you know, among fears. 
this way of, um, of living, you know, just by playing fears off of one another, is obviously fragmented. And all of us experience think, some of this fragmentation, if not in ourselves, at least in, in our families and our communities. The fragmentation comes from not having a primary love that is integrated enough to be a principle of integration for everything else. Second way of fearing God. Others fear to be punished by God, but in such a way that they turn to God, not away from him. These are people who uh, Thomas calls, they have servile fear. So we have servile fear if our primary love is ourself, <clears throat> excuse me, but understood rightly, namely as ultimately oriented toward God. The fact that we fear punishment, though, indicates that we love God primarily for our sake, as opposed to loving him for his sake. Our attention is not fixed on, on self in union with God, such that you know, I, I can't look at myself without seeing God, and I can't look at, at God without understanding myself in him, but rather our attention is fixed on ourself, and then God as someone separate from you know, the good. Thomas notes that servile fear is a gift of the Holy Spirit, not a gift with a capital G, um, in other words, it is not, it is not the gift um, of fear, but it is a gift. So he says it's present in those with faith, hope, and charity, or it can be present. So it's not the case that the presence of the theological virtues somehow expels all servile fear. Servile fear is good insofar as it turns us to God. What is less than desirable about it is the servile aspect. It is the fact that our actions you know, with respect to God are motivated by fear because, again, they're oriented toward a love that is less than him. So once again, the less than perfect aspect of servile fear is that it stems from self-love that isn't perfectly ordered to God as our greatest good. Okay, so somebody gets it right, though. There is some way of fearing God that is perfectly ordered. And uh, this kind of fear is called filial or chaste fear. Those who have filial, filial or chaste fear fear to offend God because they wish to be in union with him, period. So we have filial fear if we love God as our primary love, such that we know ourselves and love ourselves only in union with him. Here, we love God for God's sake, which we understand to include our sake. How do you get this love? Thomas identifies the gift of fear of the Lord with this gift, with this, this fear, fear of the Lord, filial fear. The title gift in this instance isn't just an honorific title um, that is given to um, you know, the most desirable love or the most, um, like the superlative uh, fear. Gift here indicates that this is given by the Holy Spirit and that we could not get it by our own efforts. How do we get it then? How do we fear to offend God? We don't get it because we have fixed our eyes on God and seen that he is good but rather because the Holy Spirit has fixed our eyes on him. And then we have seen that he is good. 
So it is the Holy Spirit directing our apprehension of God and thereby directing our appetite. St. Thomas describes each of the gifts of the Holy Spirit as a docility to the action of the Holy Spirit. And you could say that the gifts are distinguished according to you know, what faculty or what power in us um, expresses this docility primarily. Docility is important because it's, it indicates that the Holy Spirit won't come into our souls. The Holy Spirit won't act against our will. Um, so docility of the will will be involved in the reception of every gift of the Holy Spirit. But in the case of the gift of fear of the Lord, that docility also finds expression in the sensible appetite, and in particular, in the irascible passion of fear. So how does that, what's that look like? Because we are loved by God, because our attention is directed by the Holy Spirit to God, we know him to be good. We know him to be good. We know him to be good in such a way that we could endure the loss of all other goods and we would be loved nonetheless. The gift of fear fixes our attention on God so that we hope to receive everything from him. And this hope frees us from our attachments to smaller hopes. And that freedom casts out all fear. Before I uh, transition to the next part, I should mention that Thomas actually identifies a fourth fear that he calls initial fear. And um, I'm not going to give it a lot of airtime because it's, it's basically just a, um, a combination of servile fear and filial fear. This is actually a little encouraging because the, when he says, oh, initial fear, it's a suggestion that most of us have initial fear. Most of us are on the way. So it's not that either you have all servile fear um, or you have you know, perfect, um, perfect filial or chaste fear, is that there is a progression. Um, and it is the Holy Spirit who moves us um, toward, that, uh, toward that fuller possession of life charity and that gives us that hope that sustains all. All right, so part three. Um, if we find ourselves to be in that mixed bag of initial fear with both servile and filial fear, how do we know which fears to resist and which we ought to follow, if that indeed is what you do with fears? I'm drawing uh, in this part from St. Thomas's account of fear as a vice. It's worth noting, though, that Thomas doesn't regard a passion as vicious or virtuous solely on the basis of the external act to which it might give rise. So it's not the case that passions are sinful if I acted on them and then that would be a sinful act. Passions are disordered insofar as they arise from or incline us to a disordered relationship with reality. So the passion can be disordered even if it just gives rise to an inclination that we don't act on. Right? Um, Thomas's way of saying this is that passions are disordered when they make things seem to be greater or smaller than they are. Fear can um, express and affect this disorder, this greater, greaterness or, you know, um, smallerness. I think I just made up two words there. <laughs> uh, in two ways. 
So first, passions can arise, um, or fear can arise at the wrong time. Thomas distinguishes between antecedent and consequent passions. A well-ordered passion is consequent or after apprehension. So recall that a passion is a movement of the sense appetite and that appetite responds to what is apprehended. Disordered passions are antecedent to apprehension. So rather than moving us toward or away from what we perceive, the passion influences what we perceive and how we perceive. So for example, uh, you know, my fear of the pain of fasting might influence me to go look up again, you know, the church's guidelines on fasting and see if there's, if there's any way that I actually can have buffalo wings, you know, <laughs> or, you know, it's like, well, now let's look again. Let's see this. Maybe, maybe it can be softened a little bit, right? So that's not me apprehending something and then having a passion in response to it, but that is the passion saying, uh, let's see this in a different light. So that's a matter of disorder because that is, again, the opposite. That's the inverse of how things should be. Um, a second way that fear can express and, and uh, affect disorder is by rising with an intensity that's disproportionate to the reality before us. This disorder seems to me, at least, that it applies both to consequent and antecedent passions. Um, so suppose that I accurately perceive that a friend is abandoning me. Um, and in response to this, I experience some fear. So on a natural level, there's nothing disordered about that. Um, even if it's an indication that charity in me is not yet perfect because God is my only love, right? Um, so a friend abandons me, I experience fear. Um, it, on a natural level though, can be disordered if my response is absolute terror, right? Paralyzing terror. So even if it is right to fear the loss of a human good, um, you know, and that loss isn't, you know, sinful, uh, the passion can be disproportionate to the object, the evil that is before me. Um, Thomas does assure us, though, that um, <laughs> there are some fears that are good. And he assures us of this by noting that Christ himself was not without fear. So we are not called to a passionless life. Um, Thomas says that Christ had the gift of fear, not because Christ feared to, uh, that, that he would somehow offend the Father, um, but he had the aspect of the gift of fear that we could call as just reverence. So this desire that God not be offended. Christ also had natural fear. So presumably if he had been around an Italian, Italian espresso machine, <laughs> you know, and perceived the, the, the flame underneath it and the, the scalding hot, that he would recoil from that. So he had natural fear. And then Thomas notes that Christ had wonder, which is pretty amazing. Um, so this is uh, wonder expressing itself in his um, human intellect, even though, of course, from all eternity, he knows he can't be surprised by the magnitude of anything. Okay, uh, let's recap. So thus far, Thomas has shown us in part one that all fear is a movement of the sense appetite in response to the apprehension of a future arduous evil. In part two, it shows us that fears differ on the basis of their objects 
which includes both what we apprehend and how we apprehend it, and that our apprehension is determined ultimately by what we judge to be the greatest good. And then in part three, we've seen that the fears, uh, that fears enslave us only insofar as they affect or express um, a disordered relationship with reality. So I'd like to close by offering some practical advice. So what can we do if we wish to be freed from slavish fear? And what, if anything, can we do to open ourselves to the gift of fear of the Lord? And I think as I mentioned at the very beginning, this section is an extrapolation on what Thomas says, but it's not strictly from him. So I claim authorship of any heresy or confusion. All right. What can we fearful people do to free ourselves from slavish fear? And how can we open ourselves to the gift of fear? It's good to note that those are two different questions, and I'll take the easier one first. It seems that there is something that we can do um, to begin to free ourselves from slavish fear. Um, at the very least, we can strive to turn away from what we know causes or increases slavish fear. So recall that fear is a movement of the appetite and that appetite responds to apprehension. So we can reorder our appetite by redirecting our apprehension. What would that redirecting um, of our apprehension look like? First, let me note what I don't mean. I don't mean that we would directly command ourselves not to be fearful. So you can't um, reorder your appetite by saying, don't be afraid. Um, many people have said to me, calm down. <laughs> Thank you for laughing because it doesn't work, right? Uh, as you can tell, it me, it inspires the opposite response, right? Um, uh, so that just doesn't work, right? But why doesn't it work? Because it skips over the cause of our fear, which is apprehension. So directly commanding the appetite not to be appetitive doesn't work. You have to go through the cause, right? Um, Redirecting the appetite also doesn't mean just turning away from apprehending the object altogether. So in the words of Monty Python, it doesn't mean run away, run away. Um, because one, not all things uh, are such that we can physically flee from them. But two, we can for a while internally kind of just suppress a thought, um, but it doesn't go away. Right? You really can't flee from it definitively. So what would redirecting the appetite look like, um, according to St. Thomas? Um, when we notice that our apprehension of reality is disordered, that's a complex thing. So when we notice that our apprehension of reality, reality is disordered, probably because a friend tells us this, um, that is, when we perceive that we perceive something to be greater than we know it is, at that point, we should engage the will to command the intellect to look again until our apprehension corresponds to reality as it is. So when we command the intellect to look again, what we hope will come to light are all of those lenses 
the judgments through which we have previously perceived that object. So the buffalo wing, <laughs> you know, if it, if it came to light that I, I flinch whenever I see a buffalo wing, you know, at some point I would turn, I would say, okay, I'm gonna look at this object um, and I want to come to light, why, what is it in this that is causing me to perceive it to be evil? Um, and what hopefully comes to light, again, are those memories um, that have become stuck to our perception of the object. Three comments about this process. First, um, it isn't enough simply to intellectually see those lenses. It isn't, isn't enough to say, oh yes, well, I had that experience of the, you know, uh, food poisoning when I was 12, and okay, there it is, so I shouldn't be afraid anymore, right? It's not enough just to see it intellectually. Um, we actually need to, as I said, feel the association. In order to break the association, we need to feel it. Why? Because the association is actually, it is, you could say, so to speak, fused in our appetite itself. Um, it's not only fused in the apprehension, but it's fused in the appetite. Um, Okay, second comment is that because the lenses through which we view these, um, these objects are by nature associated with fear, we can often be afraid to see it. We can be afraid of letting our associations come to light. I personally am convinced that there actually is no healing from slavish fear without the touch of the Holy Spirit. So that's, a, that's a, I think, a strong position. I don't know if that's Thomas's, but that is my position. <laughs> um, precisely because this would be, how would we ever conquer this fear? It's a redoubling. Um, third comment. It can actually be counterproductive, or even Pelagian, um, to say, I am going to deliver myself this day from this slavish fear. Um, and I would recommend um, that what we do is entrust to the Holy Spirit not only the task of breaking any associations that might come to light, but also that we entrust to the Holy Spirit the task even of bringing to mind what and whether any of these associations should be broken. So, lastly, speaking of things that don't happen without the Holy Spirit, how can we open ourselves to the gift of the fear of the Lord? This is more difficult than the other question, of course, because uh, a gift by nature can neither be earned nor subject to extortion. So as above, in the case of the gift of fear, although we can't do anything to earn the gift, we can strive to turn away from what we know prevents our reception of it. Our best work regarding both good and bad fears, that is to say, is the work of asceticism, which is turning away from impediments, or at least desiring to turn away from impediments. So what are the impediments to the gift of fear? All of them reduce to one thing, disordered love. Looking in hope to anything other than God to receive from that thing what God alone can give. That is disordered love. I mention this because in the Secunda Secunda, Thomas locates the gift of fear of the Lord underneath the theological virtue of hope and alongside the virtue of temperance. 
So you could say the gift of fear of the Lord frees us from indulging in false hope, frees us from looking to smaller loves to give us what we desire ultimately. We open ourselves to the gift of fear when we tell the Holy Spirit what we wish to be freed from, namely all these attachments. We open ourselves to the gift when we surrender, or if we can't surrender, we tell him that we wish to surrender. <laughs> much has been said about this already, and I don't want to uh, say too much because it would appear to be an algorithm then, uh, but I do think there are two, just two comments. Um, Surrender is good under any circumstances, but surrender can become weak or thin um, if it's very generic. Um, and I'm not talking just about the language that we use. It's not that you have to use a certain phrase. But I think it's very helpful um, to say something like, I, Holy Spirit, I surrender this to you. So not just to say, I surrender, although that is good, but to surrender to him specific things. Um, when he brings them up, when he brings them up. I also think it's helpful not to command um, the Holy Spirit to come and get something. Um, even though, again, the, sometimes the authority of the Holy Spirit can come into us and we find ourselves commanding, um, you know, praying a prayer that has far more authority than we by our, you know, puny, puny selves could, could muster. Um, but I believe surrender is it's very helpfully expressed in this. You say, Holy Spirit, I give you permission to do whatever you want in whatever way you want at whatever time you want with this. Rather than saying, Holy Spirit, come take this. Holy Spirit, I give you permission to do with, with this whatever you desire. So, one more thing. Um, initially, in the process of um, moving away from slavish fears and opening ourselves, attempting to open ourselves um, to the gift of, the, of fear of the Lord, we tend to cling to our own acts of asceticism. So I've just said that asceticism, again, turning away from our attachments, um, turning away from that disordered love, that's a good act. But it can become an impediment itself if we cling to our own project. So if the act of asceticism becomes egocentric self-analysis, um, or if it becomes for us the center of our focus, that's the time to surrender your attention on your own asceticism and to say, Holy Spirit, I give you permission. Behold the wretch that I am. Um, and this is an interesting place to end, but I think this is an indication or one place where the Lord actually uses despair. Sometimes he leads us toward a deep surrender by leading us through despair, even of our best efforts. Despairing of the help of God is never good. Despairing of our own ability to acquire on our own or even with the Lord's help, you know, me plus the Lord, then we'll do it together. Despairing of that leads to a deeper and deeper surrender. And that ultimately is the place where there is no fear. <laughs>